Okay, well, today we will uh, depart from the um, preface of the uh, book of Acts, and we will press on into the narrative portion of the book, Acts 1, 6 through 11 this morning, if you want to turn there, and let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we come to you in the name of the risen, ascended, and glorified Jesus, our own flesh at your right hand asking that the preaching of your word would be attended by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So when they, that is the disciples, came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. When I think of war, or like World War II, I think of men, like in Europe or the Pacific, um, you know, dirty battle fatigued infantrymen. That's what my mind goes to. Uh, This week I saw a picture of my grandpa with his mother, and he was in his army uniform. My grandpa was a cook in World War II in Alaska. He he wasn't one of those those guys. And what, I don't know what the status, this may be wrong, but they say something like it takes nine men for every one on the front lines. Each and every person, though, in, in the military, in the army, has a vital role to play. They're all laboring toward the same objective, even if they have different and unique roles and responsibilities. They share a united mission. It seems to me there's a great deal of confusion about what our mission is as individual Christians. We know, I think broadly, that our purpose on earth is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But what is our mission? What role has Jesus given me to play as a member of His kingdom? And our individual callings can be uh, difficult to nail down, and our callings can vary from person to person. They do vary, and our callings will actually change perhaps many times throughout the course of our lives. But our mission, in contrast to our callings, is the same. It's singular, united mission. We all share it. The arrows of our callings all point to the one magnetic North Pole. So we may feel turned around, tossed by the wind and waves at times in life. We don't always know what to do. We don't know what job we should have, who to marry, uh, what things to volunteer for, what things to abstain from, how best to spend our time. 
But what a comfort it is to know that, that as we're whisked about on the, the waves and the currents of life, the compass always point, points north. We always have this same mission. This passage helps to give us kind of a broad sense of, of where we are, where we sit in the grand scope of redemptive history, and it cl- crystallizes and confirms for us what is the singular united mission of the church, and therefore the singular united mission of each and every person in the church. So we will uh, try to follow this narrative under four headings. Uh, Anticipation, correction, coronation, and expectation. Anticipation, correction, coronation, and expectation. Um, And if we're going to understand our mission, we have to have a grasp on the kingdom. That's a big word in Christianity, the kingdom. What does the kingdom mean? What is the nature of the kingdom? This is something the disciples and Israelites for generations had been anticipating for a long time, the arrival of the kingdom. So that's why our first heading is anticipation from verse 6. So in verse 6, the disciples have this question that seems to arise almost out of the blue, at least at first glance. uh, They're going along, as Luke records it, they, they receive the command to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then this question, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Where did that come from? The disciples get kind of beat up by preachers and commentators for this question. Uh, people say, like, they were so slow to understand. Their nationalism blinded them to the true nature of the, the coming of the kingdom. And as Calvin humorously notes, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Now, there's validity to all these critiques, but let's not be quite so hard on the disciples. Uh, They were brought up in a time and place that emphasized strongly the promise of restoration of the seat of the throne of David. Perhaps now more than ever, they long for that fulfillment as they, they suffer under the weight and yoke of the Roman government. They'd also been taught, rightly, that the coming of the Holy Spirit would mark the beginning of the latter days. All these Old Testament prophecies would be fulfilled. David's son would become and reign and there would be peace in Israel. They'd been taught that the Spirit coming was the beginning of that. So their question isn't actually off the wall because Jesus just said, go wait for the Holy Spirit. So it, it makes sense to expect the restoration at this time. Now their sense of anticipation and expectation is to be commended even if it's a little misguided which brings to light our own expectations. I mean, in Christianity, the term kingdom of God is a container that holds many diverse expectations. For some, the kingdom of God is about the culture, cultural change, subduing the earth, planting trees, caring for the environment. Or for others, it is about gaining dominion over the world and spheres and casting out demons that reside and and hold sway over certain areas. Perhaps spheres of politics, entertainment, business, and education. Or for others, the coming of the kingdom is about making the world a Christian world. So we have to define that. What is the kingdom? 
Now, what I love about some of these groups that I would consider to be misguided is their zeal in that they do a better job oftentimes of living out what they believe than I do. For example, I have some friends who are of the persuasion of what's called dominion theology, this idea that the demons hold sway over certain areas, geographical regions, Apple Tree, uh, Glenwood High School, Basalt. Like There's demons, and, and they'll undertake this practice called prayer walking. Now, there's obviously nothing wrong with praying and walking. Um, but the idea in their theology is it's a form of spiritual warfare where you're going and trying to, say, pray around Glenwood High School and, and cast out this demon that holds sway here. It's a form of spiritual warfare. So I don't think I need to say in this group, but I think that's misguided. And it's not scriptural. And in fact, in many ways, it's anti-scriptural. But I do love the zeal. I, I love that they're out there putting what they believe into practice. We should all be so zealous. But we must be aware of what Paul calls zeal without knowledge. I mean, if our understanding and our mission are out of alignment with the truth, no matter how hard we paddle, if we're an oarman paddling against all the other oarmen in the boat, that's going to be a problem. It's like a cook in the army army who, who zealously believes that the men only want to eat jello and candy bars. He may be well-meaning, but his mission is out of alignment. So the disciples rightly anticipated and longed for the arrival of the kingdom, but they misunderstood. The kingdom would not be confined to the borders of Palestine. It would not be confined to an ethnic group. It would be a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that was going to break forth across the whole earth. And so we need to be willing to examine and amend our own expectations. What is it we are anticipating? What do we expect of the kingdom of God? These are the first steps in making sure our compass is is calibrated. If we misunderstand the nature of the kingdom, we will misunderstand our mission and our place in the kingdom. So now Jesus gently corrects his disciples in verses 7 and 8. This is under the heading correction. He refocuses their attention on the reality of the actual situation. So verses 7 and 8, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, I'm sure the disciples would object that Jesus' answer is a bit vague. (laughs) In some way, their question, it seems, crossed the line in Jesus' mind, probing into areas which were not meant to be probed into. So he gently rebukes him. He says, those things are things which only the Father knows in his own authority and is set up in his own time, in his own authority. And they're not for you to know. We all like to cross that line, especially as people who like to know things. Calvin, again, he says, This is the true means to become wise, namely to go as far forward as learning as, as far forward in learning as our Master Christ goes in teaching, and willing to be ignorant of those things which he does conceal from us. So I can summarize, I think. 
their question about the restoration was really kind of, and this is why it crossed the line, I think, is, is this it? Is this the end? Is this the consummation of all the promises? And the timing of the end is one of those mysteries. Consistently through Scripture we see that is one of those things God does not reveal. It is something firmly fixed. It's firmly established in God's mind and will. And whatever we do, we can't change it and we can't predict it. And Jesus continues in verse 8 to correct their thinking. He redirects their focus. Uh, the, the word translated but here is one of very strong contrast. There's two words for but in Greek. This is the strong one. So it's a contrast between verse 7 and verse 8. He says... The time of the end is not for you to know, but on the other hand, here's what I will tell you about times and seasons, is, is that you have a role to play. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the kingdom will include Israel, yes, Jerusalem and Judea, but also those people you hate down the road, Samaria, and those, those really filthy people, Gentiles, it's going to include them too. And you're going to be the means by which the kingdom will spread to those people. So you see how he, he re recenters their expectations. They're thinking something along the lines of the mission now is going to be setting up the earthly reign of the son of David in, in Jerusalem. He, he's going to lead us to throw off the yoke of the Roman government and to reestablish the nation state of Israel. And Jesus says, Think bigger. Think bigger. Now, little do the disciples know, their question was actually painfully close to the truth. Uh, the, the Davidic king is on the very cusp, even as they're talking now, of his coronation, of going to his throne. He will ascend to reign on high as David's greater son. But this rule and reign won't be confined to Palestine. It, it won't be confined to uh, geographical borders. His authority would not extend only to the edges of, the, of this little scrap of land. It would reach out over the whole globe. So he's corrected their understanding. And now we see the narrative of the coronation or ascension of Jesus. I labeled this from verse 9, coronation. It's kind of to put an exclamation on the point. In verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I just There's some irony here. I just love when the scripture writers put irony in, into their writings. Uh, the disciples are asking, when Jesus will restore the kingdom of Israel, he corrects them, he refocuses their attention, and then, in one very real way, the kingdom of Israel finds restoration. The king, the Davidic king, the promised Davidic king, ascends and takes his seat on his throne. But that, to me, is delightful. That, that's the thing that they've been waiting for, and it's happening right in front of their eyes. The son of David, finally on his eternal throne. Now, the ascension is such a neglected component of our salvation. It should be listed right along with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, they're all critical for our salvation. The exaltation 
coronation and session of Jesus at the right hand of the Father are indispensable. Without those things, we do not have salvation. There's a lot going on here as Jesus ascends. The ascension is not just kind of a sanctified escalator into the sky. Jesus is actually being exalted here as the king. This is his coronation. Acts 1-9 echoes Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If we don't read carefully, I, I would tend to think of this, okay, this is about when Jesus comes back, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. But notice the direction of travel. It says, and he came to the Ancient of Days. He's going back to God. He's going back to his throne to receive a kingdom. So now he sits and rules on high, and, and he's reigning even as his enemies are being progressively put under his feet. Now, Jesus could have just disappeared. like He could have just rematerialized in heaven like the, the thing in Star Trek. What's that thing called? The transporter? <laughs> they disappear and then reappear. But instead, he, he floats up into the sky as a human being, flesh and blood. That's significant. Question 49 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, What benefit do we receive from Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, and not things on earth. These three things that it brings up here are essential for salvation. First, that we have a living, breathing, human high priest interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven. Like human flesh in heaven has the first fruits. It shows that, that he will not stay separated from his body forever. He will bring us back with him. And thirdly, that he's gone, he is gone and he sends his spirit as our helper. It's almost an echo of, of um, Elijah when he goes up into heaven and Elijah watches him and he knows that he will receive that double portion of the Spirit. The bodily ascension of Jesus also says a lot about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Sometimes I think we just think that Jesus came down, became a man, did all his work, and then went back to heaven and, and started where he left off. Just went back to, to being God with no, no change. The truth is, he never stopped doing all that he did before. He never stopped upholding the universe by the word of his power. But he took on new roles as the incarnate Messiah. And those roles continue today. Uh, we don't have time to trace all of it. But we should view Jesus at the right hand, hand of his Father as a man, as incarnate Messiah. 
So yes, sovereign Lord of all things as he always has been, but also fulfillment of all the prophecies of God. For example, he reigns in heaven as the Davidic king. His enemies are being put under his feet as the seed of the woman who was promised to, to crush the head of the serpent. He is inheriting the nations now as the seed of Abraham. So you see the connection between incarnation and ascension. They're essential. Forgive me if I'm going into the weeds here, but this stuff is important. <laughs> so I, I believe, and actually this is a, whether you realize it or not, this is a bone of great theological contention, but that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about something not entirely separate from, but something distinguishable from the general sovereignty of God over all creation. That is to say, everyone in the whole earth is subject to the general sovereignty and kingship of Jesus. But only those who are his can rightly be called members of the kingdom of heaven. Everyone who walks on earth walks on God's earth. But only the redeemed can be called a holy nation. And, and that's it. That, that is the kingdom. The kingdom of the beloved son. The kingdom of heaven. A holy nation. And that's what the Great Commission is concerned with. It is the promotion of that kingdom. And that is to be our chief and primary mission. And as part of that mission, we reach out to the world. We proclaim the sovereignty of Jesus over all things. And he will one day come to judge the world in righteousness. And we plead with, with the world, preaching the gospel in hopes that God would grant them repentance and deliver them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, in order to help reorient the bewildered apostles who just saw their Messiah float into the sky, two angels appear. Presume they're angels. Two men appear in, in, in white garments. And they call these apostles to shift their gaze. There, there's a task at hand, a mission to be completed, even as they hope for the return of Jesus. So verse 10 and 11, <clears throat> this is uh, the heading, Expectation. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's possible the disciples might have been expecting Jesus to reappear shortly. <laughs> you know, Peter and, and John, they had seen the transfiguration. They'd seen Jesus do all kinds of weird things, but he, he always comes back. Maybe he'd come back to help them, perhaps still hoping he'd take up residence on an earthly throne in Jerusalem. But no, his throne is in heaven. He's going to his coronation, and his kingdom is now. And it will finally be consummated one day. The process of God putting all Jesus' enemies under his feet will not be instantaneous. It will be something that will take time. There's this in-between time, this intermediate state. Jesus is gone. He will come back. 
It's the period of time where the enemies of Christ are being progressively subdued. This is the season of, of redemptive history where Jesus, for his own glory, is winning his wars through, through cowards <laughs> and fishermen. In the time where the disciples of Christ conquered the strongholds of Satan, not, not with weapons like swords and, and, and guns, but by bearing witness to the risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and by carrying a cross. So the call of the angels here is instructive for us because um, it would be nice if Jesus would come back. The world is harsh. It's filled with sin and misery due to our own sin and brokenness. And like the apostles, we, we long for the consummation of the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes I think we live life staring into the proverbial clouds. Like Jesus would just come back and fix it. Just make it all better. Fix our problems. Fix the corrupt governments. Fix the hunger and poverty. Fix the world's impoverished standards of ethics and morality. If you just come and fix it. But I don't think he's going to come back and fix it. When he, when he, when he returns... He will come in judgment. He will burn it all up so he can start, start over again. Finally, the new heavens and new earth will be established. The enemies of Christ will be cast away once and for all. And he who has purchased us as his own will share in his inheritance. And we will dwell in glory forever with him. That is our hope. I don't set my hope on that Jesus is going to fix it. Not now. The call of the angels reminds us not to stand staring into the clouds, but to fix our gaze and our attention on the task at hand, all the while never forgetting and never ceasing to rejoice that we've already been made happy citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even now. We are the the subjects of the promised son of David, the king. So we labor in and for his kingdom with the knowledge that he will come in victory and glory and that the battle is already won. Before we close, I just want to spend a moment on application. If we are given diverse callings oriented toward this single mission in this kingdom, how does that work itself out practically? I ask you to ask yourself this question as you go through the day-to-day is, how do I define success in the kingdom? How do I define success in fulfilling the Great Commission? I think our thoughts and actions will betray what we actually find think is successful Um, if the country takes a turn toward immorality surely we all grieve and we're saddened but do we feel as though the kingdom of God has taken a hit that's a good question to ask ourselves or if we're not seeing the kind of church growth we'd like or not seeing conversions as a result of our evangelism do we feel as though the kingdom of God has ceased to advance See, I want to impress upon you that the success of the mission of the church is not seen in in the triumph of morality in the nation. It's not seen in in the growth and expansion of, of the church as we would understand those concepts. Those things are the king's job. Success in kingdom work is found in the faithfulness of Holy Spirit empowered disciples to proclaim the gospel to the nations. 
That's success. I'll say it again. Success in kingdom work is found in the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit-empowered disciples to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Not even make converts. Just proclaim. That's success. Faithfulness. That's it. That's the mission of the church. To proclaim the gospel of repentance and free grace for all who believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as individuals, whatever our calling, be it a preacher or a housewife or a a congressman or an engineer, our primary mission, that's our primary mission. And that's the thing we're to apply our gifts toward. Now that doesn't mean we all quit our jobs, take up residence on a street corner with a sign and a Bible. It, It will look differently for everyone. But that's the single uniting mission. Whatever our current calling, that is the mission. That's the umbrella under which everything else fits. And I I would die on the hill that every single believer must bear witness. We must evangelize. But that doesn't mean we all have to go around door to door or stand behind a pulpit or become a, a grocery store apologist. We're not all gifted that way. That said, as we develop a passion and a zeal for the advance of the gospel to the nations, we should find ourselves more and more willing to step outside our comfort zone. I mean, I'm often convicted. I've convinced myself I will go to the stake to be burned alive over the gospel. And yet, in my actions, I don't want to suffer the discomfort of an awkward conversation. There's a disconnect there. Now, most of us are going to be among the nine and not the one. Most of us are going to be behind the front lines playing support role for the infantry. I mean, any person who is fervent in prayer that the Holy Spirit would attend the preaching of his word, that person is worth his weight in gold. We need as many of those people as we can get. Or a mother who preaches daily the truths of the gospel to her children. That's evangelism. An older man or woman taking the time to pour into one single person, one disciple, and developing relationships with, with friends and coworkers where you show yourself to be faithful and dependable so that when someone dies or someone's wife says they want a divorce, you're the person they come to and you have an opportunity to, to present the gospel. I mean, I could go on and on. There's a million and one ways to be faithful in upholding and employing our worldly calling in the mission of the kingdom of heaven. So I just want to close with an example uh, from Paul, Paul's life. Um, just what he saw as important as he brought the gospel to the nations. Uh, have, have you ever wondered what you were, would say, what you would do if you had the opportunity to speak to a person of power face to face? an authority figure. Or what did Paul speak about when he had that opportunity? He spoke to the governor, Felix, and he didn't say, well, you know, Felix, your approach on Jewish relations stinks. (laughs) And your fiscal policies, well, don't don't even get me started. Acts 24 says that he spoke to him about faith in Christ Jesus, and that he reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control 
and the coming judgment. That's what Paul cared about. He had an opportunity to speak to an authority figure in the region. That's what he chose to speak about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the weapons of the king's spirit-empowered warriors, the gospel, the word of Christ. I'll just close from 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Amen.